Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast Community Voices Series. I'm your host, Gregory Landway, and with me today we have Hannah Simmons and Joao Daniel from Era Brazil, who are doing some really amazing project development work down in Brazil to bring carbon credits to market, and most excitingly, creating a new Jaguar eco-credit class with the Regen Registry community to come to market on Regen Network. So we get into all sorts of things about creating new credit classes and the ins and outs of that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. Um, And thanks for listening. All right. Welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, uh, Hannah and Danny and Rebecca. So we're going to um, be talking about um, ERA, which is an amazing um, company based out of Brazil, and the work that we're doing together on a biodiversity credit. Um, so that's just like the framing for our listeners. And I, I'd love to just go around and maybe pass the, the virtual talking stick first to Hannah and just <laughs> You know, get to have have you introduce yourself and also a little bit about Era and you know just the inspiration in a general way. You can pass it on to to Danny and he can pass it over to Rebecca and then we can dig in and go from there and and see see how deep we can get into the the Jaguar territory together. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, it's an honor to be here, Greg. So thank you so much for inviting us on and. Um, I'll start by telling a bit about myself. So I'm a Canadian. I was born in Vancouver, Canada. So nature was always really close to me, um, being in BC. And my parents are both avid nature fans and my mom's a yoga teacher. So I had quite the, you know, eclectic upbringing. And my dad is actually also in forest conservation and carbon markets. So when I was like 14, I'm hearing all about the protocols in Kyoto and project development and projects that he's working on. So I obviously, you know, as a good young daughter does, I'm amazed by the work he's doing and I decide to follow into his footsteps. So (laughs) I went to study at McGill University and from there I studied, um, they had a school of environment, which was a very holistic degree which was super cool because I got to look at the environment and climate change from different lenses, right? So you looked at it from the health lens, from agriculture, geology, politics, philosophy. So it was this beautiful degree that gave me this sort of 360 about climate change and where we were at. Then I decided to get some experience, right? So I went to Calgary where Canada's first carbon market was. And there I learned a lot about working in a carbon market. So hands-on experience, what it was, what it felt like, right? So I worked at a small startup. We did project development. We developed protocols. And we were really on the forefront pushing this agenda forward, like using market mechanisms to bring about change, right? And being from Vancouver, I did not know what winter was like. So (laughs) I decided, you know, I was like, enough of this minus 30 craziness, I need to go south. And I also wanted some hands-on experience working in the sustainable development field, right? Like actually impacting people's lives and not just Canadian oil companies. (laughs) Um, So that was sort of the sparked this sort of transition in my life where I went, okay, bye Canada. And I went south and I quit everything. And I go on this journey of finding what it was that made me passionate. And I found ERA and I found surfing. (laughs) Obviously that was a big part of it. And I found Brazil. So I found myself in this completely new culture, uh, learning a new language and meeting uh, amazing people. And one thing led to another. I founded ERA in 2018. And ERA is uh, a carbon project developer but I like to call us a impact developer because we are moving away from this carbon centric vision, right? So we are talking today about the biodiversity credit class on the Regen network um, because we believe that the land um, can really 
when you protect a hectare of land, it's not just carbon that you're protecting from an avoided emission, right? You're protecting waters, you're protecting soil, you're protecting habitat for animals. So there's a myriad of benefits that you're getting. And we need to, as conservationists, as environmentalists, look at how we can tap into those different market mechanisms to to bring about the value, to value these other activities and other benefits, ecosystem service benefits. So that's really sort of a, a high level of ERA. So ERA, it, we started as a pro carbon project developer. We focus on RED, so reducing emissions from deforestation. So we are avoiding emissions from the conversion of this beautiful biome in Brazil called the Cerrado biome, which is uh, the headwaters of the Amazon. So it's a very important biome. Uh, it's also where the most deforestation is happening in Brazil. Uh, and why is that happening? Because of the expanding agriculture. So we're talking soy, we're talking cattle, uh, we're talking, you know, the food that we all eat and, you know, the fibers that we all need. Um, so I'm not trying to point out any villains here, but it's it's the way we've, it's the way our society is today, right? So um ERA started as a carbon project developer. We're transitioning to this more holistic impact developer. And we're super excited about this initiative with the Regen Network and developing this new credit class. So I'll take a pause and pass it over to Joan Daniel, my partner. And um, he can continue a bit and give an intro and his background. Awesome. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that Hannah set the bar too high for an introduction now. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So thanks guys for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm João Daniel, also known as JD. Um, I'm first and foremost an environmental consultant. I have a law degree with a focus on corporate and environmental law, as well as a postgraduate degree in environmental management. My focus is on regulatory issues for carbon markets, as well as general startups, uh, issues, innovation, impact investing. Today I'm ERA's legal counsel and business development director. I'm also a member of the La Clima uh, Latin American Climate Lawyers for Mobilize and Action, a research officer in the Blockchain and Climate Institute, and the founding member of the Wellbeing Economic Alliance Brazilian Hub. And it's a, it's a true pleasure to be with Hannah in this uh, journey that she just described. It's great, to hear the, it's great to hear the big picture again, because I remember the first time that we had spoken, and um, this is Rebecca here from R&D. And I was I was moved um, by by not just the the narrative and the mission um, and how critical of a of a biome this is, but that there was a this focus on smallholders. There was a focus on on these flagship species to where in in so many circumstances we see such tension there between communities that are trying to eke out a livelihood for themselves, butting right up against species of large mammals that deserve habitats of their own. And I really appreciated that that the mission and also the, the methodology itself held both of those actors um, and the importance of having them, you know, um, like their needs at the table. And I will say from that initial conversation to now, you have been busy. Um, it's really quite remarkable how quickly you've moved and all that you've accomplished. Um, and I, I also want to note that you bring to the table this other Web3 skill set um, that sets you apart also. Um, I wonder if you guys could describe kind of the, um, the Web3 vision that, that you bring to the table. For sure. Yeah, so um, we, it's funny, the universe puts people in your path uh, in the most amazing way. It's almost divinely guided at times. So I live in a small surf town in the northeast of Brazil called Bahia. And I'm at a farmer's market and I uh, bump into uh, Ishmael who works <laughs> and, and won a hackathon. And so we started working together and brainstorming and just uh, he is bringing this big Web3 component to ERA. And I'd say, you know, he's helping us navigate this Web3 and, and how Web3 can support the mission that we're trying to achieve, right? Through transparency, through inclusion, and through just uh, this whole new way of, of seeing it. Like, it took me about 
I don't know, five conversations with him to actually kind of wrap my head around the, just the basics of, of everything. Cause he's like, throw out everything, you know, and then try and look at it a whole new perspective. So it's really, it, it takes the mind into these amazing mystical ways of, of viewing the future, I think is what it is, right. Is what it's, anything is possible. Right. So I, I really like that. What, what web three and J, JD, please add some pieces there. Before JD jumps in, I want to add a layer of just the serendipity because Ishmael, I recently found out later. I mean, there's a couple other serendipities like Hannah with your dad as well, but it's like just such a weird, small, inter interconnected or interwoven world, right? But Ishmael uh, lived for a while at this eco village called Lost Valley Educational Center, and he was mentored by Rick Valley, who taught me permaculture. And a couple months ago, and Ishmael had just organically started engaging with Regen Network and doing his thing. He's amazing. He comes to calls and he's engaging and, you know, validating and doing stuff. And then, you know, like a couple months ago, I, I was just chatting with Rick on the phone, catching up because he's an old friend and mentor of mine. And I was like, oh, I was thinking about him, talking about his friend, his young friend Ishmael, who'd moved to Brazil <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, what? Are you kidding? And then, you know, and then that was about the same time that Ishmael ran into you, like on the beach. And we had already been talking <laughs> about so beautiful yeah. things. And then, you know, Jim and your dad had like yeah. all at the same time, there was just this like giant magnetic collision around really this like larger theme, which is how how do we kind of move beyond red? in a way perfect perfect as a to, to link market mechanisms for forest conservation and also link that to agroforestry and landscape regeneration and do that in a holistic way and so all you know everybody's sort of like like moths to the proverbial flame or something we're coming towards this beacon of a problem and and trying to figure it out together so it's just there's it's fun to see the layers of serendipity really Totally. And, and to that point, I think you, you hit on something really important because in order to get climate finance for forest conservation in the system that we have set up today, which is VERA and voluntary carbon market in this red framework, is you need a pressure on the forest. So if you're an indigenous land or if you're a park and you don't have pressure on your forest, then you're not qualified in the eligibility criteria to claim uh, finance, which it's is crazy making. <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy, crazy making because they're the best land stewards of all, and then they're cut out of this system that we've made to finance and reward land stewardship and conservation. It's just like okay, then we failed to create a good system because it's excluding vulnerable peoples who need these finance, right? So. Um, that's why I think this biodiversity uh, token that we're creating uh, is one way of trying to capture that value and reward those land stewards, right? Because if there's an indigenous population or park uh, or land steward um, that has a large tract of land, right? And within that land, he has jaguars, he has tapirs, and he has the maned wolf, for example, here in, in the Cerrado. What we're looking at is we're looking at creating a keystone species specific guideline for how those land stewards can then create these tokens to then reward their conservation efforts, right? So that's the basic premise of what we're trying to do here uh, with this new credit class. Can we unpack for a second just this, like, I, I want to get into the keystone species monitoring and, and how that represents in a holistic way land conservation. But before we go, I, 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 I'm very curious to get your frank opinion around where, you know, where we went wrong in creating a system that requires pressure, right? And like kind of specifically and technically, is this an issue with our definition of additionality? Is that where we would pinpoint it, you know, or is it bigger than that? Is it more diffuse than that in in the approach to valuing something? 
you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we're going to reinvent this, where are the intervention points that you're most interested in? I mean, I think there's a whole reinvention around a keystone species and valuing that. But, you know, before we get there, you know, yes. do you, would you mind sharing a little bit about your opinions around where sort of this, this, I always call it jokingly kind of the, uh, the hostage, the, <laughs> the, the hostage version of value that like, you know, you, you only get money if, you're threatened to, you're only going to give money if it's, there's a threat basically. Perfect. Yeah. So I'm going to probably give my perspective and I'll let JD give his. So when we're talking about carbon credits, we're talking about an offset, right? So an offset means that that company created an emission, an emission and has a target, right? So it has a reduction target. So it wants to get to zero emissions, net zero by 2050, for example, So that corporate is going to do a bunch of different actions according to his marginal abatement cost curves, right? So he's going to try and replace all the light bulbs, replace the diesel generator, uh, but he's only going to get so far, right? So when he does all those activities and he still has to get to net zero, what are are his options? Well, his options are offsets. And so when you have an offset, then you need to have that carbon credit as an additional Um, activity that is taking out a carbon uh, credit or carbon unit from the atmosphere or an avoiding avoiding a a release of a carbon unit to the atmosphere. So when you're talking about offsetting, I think that's what we're talking about is we're talking about um, this sort of but global carbon budget and how many atoms are going in and out, right? But when we're talking about a claim or a token or, or a buyer wanting to support the conservation of a habitat, a jaguar habitat, we don't need additionality, right? So this, um, you brought up the word additionality, and I just want folks to, to be on the same page as us. So additionality basically means that the project activity that you're doing, the carbon project that you're implementing, it would have to bring about a change that wouldn't have happened um, in the baseline scenario. It wouldn't have happened anyways, so defining that is kind of tricky, right? It's like counterfactual magic. Like, how do you say <laughs> that it wouldn't have happened? It's like a statistical thing, right? They're sort of saying there's X percentage of deforestation, and therefore that crosses a threshold, and therefore you qualify for this definition of additionality within the framework. And doesn't Perfect. it also exactly. assume that the activities that are baseline are insufficient? So what if the activities at baseline are what should be rewarded anyways. So it does seem like a conundrum. Perfect. In that situation, perfect. So I think why they created this sort of additionality is to create this sort of rigor, right? And this sort of, you know, system that is super good on science, scientific and backed by all this expert knowledge. But I'm at the point where it's like, guys, you know, we're in the 11th hour and bases are loaded, you know, society is going off a cliff. And we need action, like we need finance to flow and we, we don't need all these barriers. So um, part of me understands that we need rigor. We need rigor. We need good methodologies. We need good definitions. But we also need to open up our minds a bit. And I think it look, look at the system that we've created and look at its flaws and see where we can improve these flaws. Right. And I think this is where the Regen Network and this biodiversity and looking at environmental markets from a different way. And that's where I think blockchain technology can help, right? Uh, Because we're creating these tokens, these um, assets um, in this different world, but it has value, right? And and anyone can participate in this. So it doesn't just need to be a corporate buying it for their sustainability reporting goals, right? And their commitments. It can be uh, Hannah wanting to buy a couple tokens to support the Jaguar because she believes in that. So it sort of it opens the door to all these different possibilities. And that's what I, that's why I get so excited. <laughs> yeah. I think I just want to add, cause I think kind of touched on very interesting points, but I think it's a, a design by fault. It's a fault by design for, for red. Right. So, I mean, if you're thinking about avoided emissions, you need this type of additionality to have some kind of integrity. So I wouldn't criticize that directly. I would just think that now looking from a non-carbon centric approach, we need to really look at the, different ecosystem services we want to get payment for landholders and smaller communities or, or, or and farmers so i mean when you look with 
with honesty into this is how can we potentialize all these ecosystem services that Red by by design is encompassing in its framework. So Red is very good because it brought to us this different, more uh, broader approach into understanding that co-benefits need to be present on some projects that Carbon are not looking at co-benefits. So from this perspective, perspective, uh, perspective, I think that Red largely amplify other ecosystem services. And this was something that from the start we thought, well, we are bringing carbon finance to all these landholders in the Cerrado. So how can we bring more money to other stuff they're doing and are not, not being quantified because what's our basic, like empirical, easy to grasp unit is carbon. That's great. But how can we bring more stuff into the, into the, into the table? And I think biodiversity is the next, the next one, but we have a bunch of, of, of cool ones like water pollination. I think there are a bunch of other grantees in, in, in Regen's program that are, being contemplated to with our ecosystem services. And I think that's the, the big change here that we're going to see. So I, I think that red, yeah, it's it's by design. We need to think about avoided emissions. So sometimes you need to be on a, on a place where it would be on a high deforestation rate, and then it will be very relevant to the project. And in other circumstances, you will be looking at stuff like jurisdictional baselines to equate this and, on a, and don't entail perverse incentives in different subnational entities or even federal entities considering a country. But then this is a whole other regulatory perspective that I think from what we're, we're talking here is how to diversify the agenda, right? How to stop looking only to the UNFCCC and start looking to the Convention on Biodiversity, the Convention on Desertification and other, other worldly agendas that are being developed on the last decades. There's so many different tiers of diversification I see with y'all's work too, because it's it's the asset diversification, the different methodologies, the different types of credit classes, you know, that a lot more methodologies can fit inside. And I love the various ideas that we've talked about and that y'all have explored around like scientific diversity, the different ways to verify and validate data. Um, so maybe if it's, it's like shifting to think about like your approach itself for flagship species, for the species that you've talked about. I mean, these are ones that people, I think when people think about carbon, they can't, they can't um, connect with that. They can't relate to that. But when they think about an animal, they think about a, a you know, a large mammal that is endangered. Like there's, there's so much to connect to about that. So I feel like your methodology stands to be such a, such an example to others that are trying to create these flagship methods um, with that balance of rigor that we're talking about with species that really demand your attention. Um, I'd love to hear more uh, kind of an update because I know for for the listeners to know that you guys are are deep in the methodology process and getting um, getting the pieces together and starting getting things reviewed. So could you give us some like some structure about um, the methodology? Yeah, 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 sure. Uh, so our, our methodology, it's it's it has a quite simple concept, which is it starts with, as we as we we said, we had one of the basic pillars of our Red Cerrado program is that we choose a flagship species per landholder in which we want to monitor on the lifetime of the project. So when we thought about this, this these are keystone species. We used to call them flagship species, Rebecca, and now we're calling them keystone species because it's more aligned. With, with what we, we understand how these animals, they are uh, placed in the trophic level. So yeah, so it's basically, we understood that we had the lifetime of project monitoring specific keystone species. So uh, around this concept of the keystone species, we understand that that habitat area would qualify as an area of interest, right? Or it would be a, an, a, an area that would be on with high uh, environmental quality, or it would at least show that it connects two areas with high environmental quality. So we said, well, if this is the case, like how can we create a methodology that creates a way we can monitor not the, the, the only the health of, the, of, of the, the, the keystone species, but the health of the environment, and then create a, a, a series of practice-based uh, indicators that would work around these concentric circles around the monitoring system and start on the like uh, we're starting with a minimum of a five-year uh, project but this is still still an, an, an open question mark because we want to understand that permanence is very important for biodiversity monitoring so anything from five to ten years for a project lifetime so that you need to maintain those and enhance the quality of that environment for that specific keystone species so you start monitoring the keystone species, the environment, you get a grasp of what you need to do, 
then you could basically create a project for the next five to 10 years to make that area more better for that species. That means property management, the financial strategy that may include ecotourism or how you reinvest revenues of your farm on, on, on increasing the quality of that area for the species and social engagement, which is the stakeholders around, around the area. Can I ask a couple of questions? So um, on the monitoring side, are we digging into verifiable credentials and trail cams? Is this sort of like, uh, you know, hey, we've got photo documentary evidence So is it device driven? You also mentioned about practices. So sort of monitoring that there's specific land-based practices. Are there different tiers? Is there going to be sort of like a light version that's very simple to get started and low cost that then expands into a more robust monitoring system? How are you all conceptualizing this sort of balance between quick, low cost and effective versus super rigorous and robust and multidimensional? And and how is that playing out and how you're thinking about the design of the credit class? Yeah, the whole idea is not to have a very high barrier entry for landholders. As Rebecca spoke, we are we are keen in helping from small holders to big landholders. Like we we want to conserve the, the all the biomes we're working on. So in order to have maybe small holders and, and medium-sized landholders, we understand that we need to have a, like a baseline of monitoring, if you want to call it this way. So uh, we rely heavily on the start uh, on camera traps, but the idea is that this this process, this journey of biodiversity monitoring stewardship, it evolves at the end of this 10-year journey. For example, for somebody working with a, a local scientific institution and putting radio collars on jaguars. So the idea is, hey, can you prove this jaguar is there with camera, camera traps, with GPS all available technology. If you can actually hire a team to go to the field, that's great. That's You can use fur traps, you can use paw traps, you can locate birth dance. But if you don't have the money to do this in year one, you can start with camera traps and get a get a get an eight-month baseline monitoring period in which you will, with no doubt, uh, show that the species is there. And then the whole thing is this, this journey up this pyramid of, of getting better quality monitoring. And this not only... Uh, something that is inside this echo chamber only with the landholder. You want to involve the community. So uh, the whole methodology entails the specific application of community uh, monitoring, of bringing local scientific uh, uh, research institutions in or our state uh, scientific institutions. So that's the whole idea is bringing the community to look at these species, right? Because that's where the power of change lies, not only in this specific private landholder agenda, but also bringing other stakeholders in. Yeah, and I think just to add to that, I think the key word here is continuous improvement, right? So when you have these practice-based methodologies, and we actually like to call ours a hybrid, because you start with, okay, This guy has a picture, a camera trap installed. He has a picture of uh, a jaguar. So he knows he has a jaguar roaming on his property and he has a hundred hectare property. Therefore, he has a hundred tokens of of biodiversity uh, of jaguar credits, right? So we're doing species specific guidelines. And then what we're looking at is to create these equations based on different practices to either increase or decrease that a hundred tokens uh, to kind of create uh, a different classification system. So if it's more light, right, if he's just got a camera trap and that's it, then he's going to have a bit of a more light and maybe a, a deduction on those 100. So he's, we're going to come up with, with these equations. But say he's... So like a buffer pool sort of design where you maximize or minimize. Okay, cool. Yes. So the base is, okay, how many hectares of habitat does he have? And that creates the basic metric for how many tokens... Uh, we start with. And then from there, we look at the different practices. So Joan said, so if you look at it like a pyramid, right? At the top, we have property management. So for example, if we're looking at the Jaguar and this guy's a cattle rancher and he has a 100 hectare forest on the side over here that he's conserving, does this cattle rancher have fences? Does this cattle rancher um, have dogs that are sort of protecting the cattle and from the jaguars to come and attack because the biggest predation of a jaguar is just a little aside in the Cerrado is actually cattle ranchers killing jaguars because the jaguars kill their cattle. So it's kind of this conflict between cattle ranchers and jaguars. 
So we look at property management. We look at different practices. So each species that we are looking at is going to have its own guideline, its own like specific guidelines and indicators and practices that we want to suggest that he implements, right? So there's property management at the top of the triangle. There's social engagement. So how is he, is he giving training sessions? Is the rancher giving training sessions to his uh, workers who work there to talk about Jaguar best practices? How to, you know, is he working with the communities to stop Jaguar predation? So, so there's property management, social engagement, and the last is financial strategy. So how is he reinvesting um, his returns into different monitoring techniques? So has he hired a research institution to do a more detailed evaluation of the species health in this area? And um, all of these indicators kind of sum up to, okay, how is this, how is the ecosystem health here? And how does that ecosystem affect the species health? Because if you just have a picture of a jaguar, that's one thing. But if over the 10 years you can understand the health of that species and how that is improving or decreasing um, based on what you're, what different practices you're doing and implementing, we're, so we're trying to get at that sort of relation between those two things. And I don't know if, Jean, you want to add anything there, but that's sort of how we're trying to tackle this thing. Because what you said, Gregory, is how do we find something that's rigorous yet also easy to apply and what mo monitoring equipment and technology do we have to support these claims yeah i know i just want to add that hearing hannah talk about financial strategy and property management is it's interesting because here in brazil for example we're in the few countries that have a national plan uh for the protection of big felines so uh, this project including how we bring DeFi into it is a way of bringing private finance into implementing a large-scale public policy that probably never saw and we'll never see such a big uh, uh, private uh, input, uh, finance input into this specific national strategy. So, uh, and all the uh, all the guidelines need to look at the particularities of how these species relate to the environment, right? So, we're, our species guidance looking to the jaguar in the Cerrado, to the giant armadillo in the Cerrado, and then it's a different it's a different status if it's in the Amazon, if it's in the Pantanal, if it's in the Pampas, if it's in the Atlantic forest. So, it's very interesting because it brings this this kind of like bottom bottom up approach right and it integrates big public policies that for a while now they need private finance to 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 be redirected to it and i just so, want to bring something really quickly to what joan said so this bottom up idea of creating these species specific guidelines so for example if there's a project uh in africa that wants to create a species specific practice-based indicators for the elephant or for the rhinoceros. This is the type of bottom-up that we're encouraging to, for other project developers and other organizations to bring in these different species guidelines so that we can have these different elements So and, and build off of each other, right, and support. So yeah, I just wanted to add that piece. Awesome. Well, so I, what, I wanted to just sort of reason through a, a hypothetical implementation in which, you know, I'm sort of curious could I, if, you know, if I had a hundred hectares that maybe is adjacent to, but it, there's like a missing corridor piece and I'm like maintaining, you know, great Jaguar habitat, um, but there's a missing corridor and I don't have proof or evidence, right? Because the ja Jaguars aren't crossing over, but they could given a shift of land management in a corridor you know, um, is there a way in which those land stewards like myself and my neighbors are incentivized to get into contract where we get like a little bit of Jaguar token and then the ability to build, you know, if we start to get proof and if we follow, we sort of like unlock more and more, you know, is that is that kind of reasoning what you all are putting together in terms of ex this is an expansion technique for conservation zones? That's exactly it. You got it right. So in that, that's why we want to start light. So light is how many hectares under conservation do you have, right? What animals do you think you have in there? Can you at least get one photo or one piece of evidence to support 
that there may be jaguars roaming in your 100 hectares. And then boom, you issue the first batch. That first batch is going to give you some money to then in do, do another activity. Then you issue another batch and you maybe get more tokens because that additional activity that you did released more tokens, right? And then boom. So you're kind of compoundingly getting more tokens. And then actually talking about corridors, that is one of the practices in property management. Are you looking at corridors? So if he takes that, though, that revenue stream from the first batches of tokens to actually reinvest in replanting a corridor, right? Then that's going to release even more uh, tokens the next time he goes through because that's a huge, in the equation that we create, that's going to be a unlocking of additional tokens because he did that improvement. Not to say the carbon that he's going to be sequestering from the trees, right? Which would be another methodology that he could apply in the regen network to get in the carbon credit class. So yeah, it's just beautiful how in the impact world, one activity leads to another, and all these standards are um, sort of being birthed at this time for project developers and, and landholders to apply them. So just to give a little example of what we're doing, so we're doing agroforestry, and we're, we're doing courses and training, and we're giving all this preference to women, right? And we're applying a, the W-plus standard to get women's empowerment tokens and credits, that we're selling. So it's like, it's just so beautiful that one thing is going into the another and there are buyers. I mean, SDG five is a really important agenda item for a lot of companies out there and they want to support women. So now we have these sort of packaged up little credits and tokens that we can actually metrify and quantify and sell into these markets. So it's, it's really exciting. Just a little aside there. That's happening over on ICTO, uh, the social cool. Awesome. I feel like it, it really reflects the the modularity that we see the need for being able to put pieces together that really reflect a place and the potential assets, the potential tokens that can come from it. Um, I got to say, aside from how exciting the the unlocking of tokens over time is and like the small holder science that, you know, unfolds from that, I, I'm, I get really excited to think about how there's such knowledge gaps around large cats that we know about. Like of all the larger mammals, they're so difficult to get a picture of like, what, a, what is a healthy population? and What do they need to be healthy? Like far beyond just large tracts of land, there are a lot of intricacies. And so I feel like the, the gift back to the community from all of this work is collection of data both, you know, um, like conventionally collected data and then a lot of the citizen science, which I think I'm going to just term it smallholder science now, that can go towards, you know, like you're saying, Hannah, these other habitats, these other endangered large cats um, from other parts of the world, like really getting a fuller scientific picture of what makes them vulnerable and what they need um, to survive. I feel like that is just going to be awesome to see unfold. And I think that's also another beauty of the Web3 because all of this is open source. So if we're capturing cool data about big cats in the Cerrado and offering that data to the scientific community, look at all the research that's going to spring from that and look at all the connections that we're going to make from that. So, yeah, I just I echo my excitement about these these different offshoots that are going to happen. Um, but I think research is a big one. And I think, Juan, would that fall under property or social engagement, right? Is that the social, is that what research? Cause we've, we've talked about research a lot. I just forgot which part of the triangle it's in. <laughs> exactly. Social engagement. Yeah. It's a, okay. a sub item. Perfect. That's super exciting. It certainly feeds into all the different ways to package and market this, you know, like different, different ways to create NFTs from this, you know, interesting findings, like ways to really quickly reflect back to the market, what's found on the ground. Um, it makes it feel a lot more agile and um, certainly a lot more connected to what what's happening. Yeah. And speaking to MFTs, I mean, imagine the the photos of the camera traps that we're going to be able to sell off as NFTs. <laughs> I mean, those are going to, I have a, a, a camera trap photo. I wish I could show the, the audience, but it's just, wow. It's all in black and white and Jaguar's eyes are just like, you know, beaming with light. It's really, it's really powerful. So it's exciting. Yeah. Do you sort of envision the ability to, you know, use an NFT to kind of be a forward contract or something where like I could buy 
from a set of landholders, like be, basically be pre-buying, hey, I'll buy all of the I'll buy all of the Jaguar tokens that you can get. And maybe I get a piece of art and a little badge and some relationship or something. It's like they're extra goodies, like a Kickstarter campaign. But what I'm really doing is I'm like pre-purchasing those credits. And I may be speculating that they're going to be in demand. And I want to kind of make the market in the future. Or maybe I just want to hold them and retire them because I'm a company that wants to like show SDG or ESG impact or something like that. So either I'm speculating that those companies will want this, you know, or I'm, or I am one of those companies is that kind of forward contracting sort of something you all are thinking about yet and doing design work around, or just sort of a, it's a glimmer of a hint of a possibility still. I'd say more of a glimmer of a hint of a possibility, (laughs) but I, I love the idea and you know, the NFT selling it as a, as a, the camera trap photo selling as an NFT was an idea, but I like where you brought it, this future contract, because what the landholder needs is money now to do more of these practice-based, practice-based indicators and, and so activities. So that would be very cool. I think we should definitely put that as a, a brainstorm and, and next steps there. Juan, what do you think? No, yeah, sure. And I, I just want to comment on the profiles of, of, of companies and institutions that might buy these tokens. It's so diverse. And I feel that the future, of course, it's still being written. We're still understanding how this market will work. But for sure, we're, we can see movements in the market with uh, companies and institutions making disclosures on, on the framework of the task force for nature-related disclosures. We have companies that are signing the UN Global Compact wanting to make claims to SDG 15, right? Life on land. So I think it's the, the chessboard is already, it's already, it's ready, right? I mean, just to understand how companies will move. So at this point, the spot market would certainly be more feasible for, but this glimmer of a possibility that Gregory just entailed, I think it's, it seems like a really cool possibility too. Yeah. And it's important to say that we're not creating a biodiversity offset, right? So it's not like company X over here destroyed a thousand hectares and now they need to compensate and buy biodiversity uh, credits. No, we're talking, this is like supporting habitat conservation and species and keystone species. So that's kind of getting away from this offsetting and more into let's support conservation and, and, and fund this, right? Yeah, it's an interesting... I mean, I, I oftentimes think there may be a market for intrinsic conservation credits from companies that want to do offsetting, but but then also you can expand beyond it. And I don't know, that might be my sort of smooth brain sort of, I've always looked at additionality and been like, this doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> you, you know, like I can understand the avoided emissions piece, I guess, but I, I always feel like it's a stretch. And maybe that's because I'm more interested in parceling out between the intrinsic conservation value, biodiversity, climate stability, these other things, and then sort of, okay, let's monitor carbon removal. Cool. That's another income stream. That's another cycle. But if you're, you know, fundamentally, if you're creating a carbon removal credit out of a landscape, at least in my opinion, you essentially additionality is sort of absurd. Either you're doing it or you're not, right? And there's sort of like a, so, and that's a whole, I know there's a debate and there's like, there's still folks out there who are like actively judging people's carbon credit Mm -hmm. methodologies who are saying that additionality is like super important for carbon removal, I'm, I'm super confused by that. Personally, I'm like, (laughs) I'm with you, Gregory. I think we need action now. And, you know, we need to reduce the barriers. Like it was an action. It helped the climate to reduce, to take carbon out of the atmosphere for the removals. I I agree that additionality can kind of be thrown out the, 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 the door, but uh, don't tell don't tell the verifiers I said that at BCS. <laughs> well, I mean, like just the counter, the, the reasoning is like, what is additionality really at the end of the day? Additionality is a specific way of trying to guarantee that that the person responsible for the action is the person who's getting paid, right? I, I think that's like, in terms of contract law, it's like I'm the buyer and I want to make sure that the person I'm paying did a thing that I can claim, 
right? I think that's the basic, that's the spirit of the agreement. <laughs> now, the spirit of the agreement, I think, could get met in different ways. You know, it's like uh, you can meet that spirit and guarantee that you're getting what you paid for, um, like a Jaguar credit or a carbon removal credit, I think in a way that transcends how the industry up until now has thought of additionality, I, I think. You know, the spirit of that can be intact. We can lower the threshold, but really maintain integrity. Like there is a person who's getting paid for a set of actions and a result. <laughs> That's what we need to pay attention to, I think. Yeah. And I think additionality. So let's take it. Let's take solar panels. OK, so if you looked at solar panels uh, 10 years ago, right, they were expensive. The return on investment was long and no one was doing it. I mean, maybe 20 years ago, whatever time in the past. In that aspect, the additionality is high, right? Because if you do it, you do a solar panel investment, um, you need carbon finance to be because because if you didn't get carbon finance, that activity wouldn't have happened in the baseline scenario, right? So it's always this co comparison of would it have happened or not. So right now, solar panel projects are mainly not additional in the carbon world anymore because I think depending on what jurisdiction, but I think VCS is throwing out their, their sort of solar panel methodology because the ROI, like it's, it makes more sense in a lot of jurisdictions to make a solar investment than to make another power investment because the technology caught up and reduced its costs. Uh, it's kind of common practice in a lot of places in the world. So it's still it doesn't need carbon finance anymore. So this additionality in the carbon world is trying to assess like, does it does it still need carbon finance to transition, right? Uh, towards sort of this ma mainstream technology. And I think that's where additionality plays a role, right? Because once it's mainstream, does it need carbon finance? And that's the philosophical answer. I think for removals, it's yes. Because carbon is coming out of the atmosphere, you're doing, you're drawing down carbon, right? So, I think when you look at, it really depends on what project type you're looking at. That that's maybe my opinion. I, I just want to add. I think additionality for removals it actually adds a cool biodiversity component because it protects the nature-based solution market from just planting eucalyptus, for example. I think that if you look at commercial planting and look like at how, how much money uh, a commercial logging is, is, is and, and wood, right, uh, gives to companies, I think that you would look at carbon finance, it's not important. And this protects our, our carbon market from having only commercial planting monoculture. So I think that, I think additionality, again, I'm doing the devil's advocate here, think additionality, has a, You're a lawyer. Has, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so in that case, in that case, additionality would be defined by there's a baseline, which would be the most if you're if you're like machine brained and all you care about is extracting the board feet it now, not even over the long term, then you're probably going to do the baseline becomes monoculture timber plantation with some specific method that everybody's using. And so in that case, additionality is doing something different from that qualifies mm -hmm. you to be considered additional. And so if you're doing ecoforestry where you're low grading and you know you're sort of or non-timber forest products or just pure conservation, you could qualify in any of those categories as in quotes additional. For so sure. Yeah. I, I still any... I'm still like I need somebody <laughs> who actually define like I'm so not bought into additionality. I, I I'm a hundred percent bought into rigor and there being contractual yeah. clarity about you're getting what you paid for. I love all of that stuff. Additionality just makes zero sense to me is maybe more, you know, like we choose to create a premium based on different locations that are deemed to be strategic or something like that. And so you can create a market premium that just says, you know, the Sejado is super important and therefore it has a premium and this other place has a little bit less of a premium. And, and that's something that we sort of bake in and people, buyers of last resort, maintain that premium because it's important. But to me, that feels different. It's like maybe this is semantic or it's like a redefinition. What's additional? We're, we're valuing it additionally <laughs> because it's sort of of sort of like some 
uh, emergency importance for for a biome for for our planet or something like that. But anyway, <laughs> this is my sort of like I'm a heretic about additionality always. <laughs> it's that time in a podcast when that. <laughs> yeah, that's the first I, one. I uh, uh, additionality heretic. That's that's the first time I, I heard that one. <laughs> I should put that in my Twitter bio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, do that. <laughs> I I love to uh I'd love to take a minute before before we have to wrap to just talk about where you guys are now, what's coming, because you you have a, a draft methodology that you're working on. Um I know you have a lot of things kind of in store. So can you give us a, a next couple of months, this next year um era view? For sure. Um, I'll talk a bit era macro and then Juan can drill into the to the methodology. So era is scaling our red serrata program. So we're going giving our first uh, issuance of credits from that uh, program. It's going to be about 350,000 tons of VCUs. And, and then we're scaling that program. And with scaling that program comes scaling and finding additional farmers for the biodiversity methodology. So it's beautiful how one of one side of our business complements the other and that's how we try and design all of our projects in this holistic view right so uh with regards to the methodology timeline i'm going to pass that over to jd because he's the front runner there yeah so our methodology we're we want to have it by by the end of may maybe our final first draft if that makes sense so that we can go through expert review in the next months. Uh, this year, we want to get it close. And parallelly, we will be working on uh, on the pilot project, which is, as Hannah said, it's it's embedded inside our RED project. So that's it. We hope that by the first semester of next year, we have our pilot project running, and that's very exciting. That's super awesome. And I know that, uh, that the other component that Ishmael is holding related to architecture and contracts and frameworks that there there are a lot of layers of of what is to come um but we're certainly excited to have you on on the methodology development track uh, i think it's really going to make waves i think it's going to show people what's what's possible so it's super exciting um i wish we could keep going i have so many more questions um but yeah this has been a really fantastic uh, opportunity to just get a little bit of a, a of a dip into the world, the era world, and the credits that you're bringing to market. Um, yeah, and just kudos to really awesome approach to um, realigning short term economic incentives with long term ecological health. It's really exciting. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. And so yeah, happy to be part of the free uh, the Regen family. It's, it's such a beautiful network and organization. And yeah. Well, I'll have to meet up at some point. I keep thinking, you know, we're so long overdue as a community for a gathering somewhere. And, you know, it keeps COVID keeps springing up here and there. But probably at some point, we just need to do it. <laughs> I think we could have for a sure. summer gathering. I, I like the sounds of that. Count yeah. us in. Awesome. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, take care, everyone. Thank you, Thank you. Bye. Bye. It was a pleasure.